best. Uh, it's good to see you guys. Uh, you can go ahead and turn, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Be back in our study of verses 27 to 31. And of course, if you've been here, you'll know that uh, we've been, you might say, taking a bit of a, I wouldn't call it a diversionary study, but just sort of a contextual sort of study uh, to provide what at least, in, at least for me, it's been helpful to, to kind of have the right framework of thinking, particularly as we get into um, elements of chapter 13 and certainly uh, chapter 14 when we head in that direction. Just thinking more specifically about this matter of prophecy and the gift of prophecy and the place of the role or function of the prophet and what the applicability of that is for the New Testament church or in the New Testament era. Uh, we've been sort of working our way through some of those elements, but let me just kind of read the, the, the verses to us first, and then we'll kind of dive back into some of this discussion. The Apostle Paul says, Now, You are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you still a more excellent way. Now, I want to begin our time today, really, with what will essentially be the conclusion of our time today. We'll begin uh, at the end, and then we'll work our way toward it with the middle. How's that for throwing you off a little bit? Uh, this, is, this is the sort of the conclusion, or an excerpt, from the conclusion of Dr. David Farnell's book entitled, Is the Gift of Prophecy for Today? Here's what he says. From the nature of the discussion in this book, the evidence demands the view that the New Testament prophetic gift ceased its operation very early in the history of the church. Furthermore, although no one single argument alone demonstrates this, the aggregate weight of the total evidence decisively points to this conclusion. When claims to prophetic activity today, and indeed throughout church history, are compared to the biblical record, woeful inaccuracy and inadequacy of such practices are evidenced. If the data from Scripture regarding the nature and practice of the biblical gift of prophecy and the testimony of church history are used as the standard to judge claims of the present possession of the gift of prophecy, the prophetic practices of charismatic groups as a whole show the need for the body of Christ to reject soundly such claims. It is of paramount importance to to make a diligent, careful scrutiny of the scriptural evidence regarding such activities. Only by such a close examination can the body of Christ guard against serious doctrinal error and misunderstanding, which can and does result from such concepts of mistaken prophecy. The sincerity of those claiming the prophetic gift today is not called into question by this book. However, the support for such claims is what is called into serious doubt and is completely rejected. 
When such an examination is conducted, contemporary claims are rendered entirely suspect. So full disclosure, I'm sure no surprise to you guys that the presupposition that I am operating from as we work through this study is one that has been articulated by Dr. Farnell in the conclusion of his book. That, that evidence demands, New Testament evidence demands, and church history uh, argues that the New Testament prophetic gift ceased its operations very early in the history of the church. But I made this sort of general argument, I think, early on in our discussion when we were doing a comparison between a cessationist view of miraculous gifts like prophecy and tongues and healings and miracles versus a continuationist view of those same gifts. I made a, a similar statement than what, uh, as what uh, Dr. Farnell says here, that although no one single argument alone demonstrates this, the aggregate weight of the total evidence decisively points to this conclusion. I bring this up because this sort of this sort of battles against our inclination, I think, or at least my inclination. I think it's not uncommon, though, for us to maybe think occasionally in these terms, where we're we're really eager to have a very sort of step one, step two, step three approach to arguing for our position and against an alternate an alternate position. And so when it comes to uh, various divergent views on doctrinal matters in, in Scripture, what we really would prefer is sort of the, you know, the silver bullet verse that just in one fell swoop, under the authority of the Holy Spirit and the, the masterful locution of the Apostle Paul just vaporizes our opponent. That's kind of what we would prefer. At least that's what I would prefer. That's really not what we have been talking about. That's really not how we need to really think about this divergent view of sign gifts, gifts of prophecy and healings and their place in the life of the church versus what we read about in the New Testament and in particular in 1 Corinthians. It is no one single argument alone. It's the, it's the aggregate of everything that you see. As I said early on, a lot of this is just observational. It's what you find sort of emerging when you look at the chronological order of the writing of the New Testament and what emerges from that literature. Or when you look at 1 Corinthians, and in particular chapters 12 through 14, and you begin to understand and see very clearly that the Apostle Paul doesn't seem to be laying out a comprehensive theology of spiritual gifts per se, but he's actually more comprehensively going at corrective measures in the life of the church. And so to interpret it as something other than that might lead us astray. And then when you look at the sweep of church history and you find that there was no real endorsed sort of use or working of prophecy in the early church subsequent to the apostles, other than maybe one of the more prominent movements by Montanus that ended up being declared heretical in other sort of sporadic instances, you have to sort of just observe and say, well, that seems to be how the Lord has been working. And then finally, when you actually do a very, I think, objective comparison 
to what we see in contemporary exhibitions of this prophetic gift or these sign gifts, and you compare that to what we actually saw as testimony of these same things and their purpose and function in the New Testament, or even in the Old Testament, you see wide disparity between those two examples. That's what I mean by, and I think that's what Dr. Fronell might be referring to here, is that it's not a single argument alone, it's just the aggregate of all of this. But his words of caution are, are to be, I think, heeded and paid attention to when he says that, that we need to use careful scrutiny because there is indeed a significant potential for error to emerge, to be cultivated in the life of an individual believer or certainly within the context of any local church. That, that erroneous thinking about what is true, what is not true, or, or erroneous practice in the life of the church that leads others astray or at minimum cultivates confusion. That's something that every believer should have some concern over and have some desire to uh, do whatever is in, uh, the need of the moment to protect a local fellowship from. Confusion, erring, reliance upon things that are not really drawing us to the objective standard and truth and revealed uh, Word of God. These are important matters for us to consider. And as we began to discuss last week, the modern conception of the gift of prophecy as well as the pre presence and function of the prophet in the New Testament church has, in, in a very meaningful and impactful way, has been codified doctrinally by several notable theologians and pastors and church leaders that, that many of us, I'm sure, would in many respects agree with and, and share common confession with around the truths of Scripture. John Piper, for example, in an article that he wrote uh, on his website, his Desiring God website, entitled The New Testament Gift of Prophecy, he basically gives us four theses about this New Testament gift of prophecy. He follows that with a definition of New Testament prophecy, and then he concludes with some practical suggestions for believers in light of these theses and in light of this definition. So let me just kind of give you John Piper, everybody, or most people heard of John Piper. We're not talking about, you know, some kind of obscure, you know, nut job with a big tent that he travels around with and does crazy things and collects money. We're talking about a devout, faithful, theologically robust, thoughtful, godly man who has had an impact on my life, personally, spiritually, been a tremendous um, point of discipleship and instruction and thinking for me. But here's how he would articulate this as it relates to this gift of prophecy. Thesis, thesis, thesis number one, it is still valid and useful for the church today. This is the clear implication of 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 12 and Acts 2, 17 to 18. Interestingly enough, I would say it's not clear from those two passages, as would others who would argue against it. So this, is, this gets into a real significant 
principle for us to be thinking about as it relates to biblical interpretation. This is not just a matter of, well, we like to do this in our church, and we prefer not to do that in our church. This really gets into our understanding of what the Scripture actually teaches, what it means by what it says. And we'll, we'll be looking at 1 Corinthians 13 in these verses uh, very soon, and we'll see that, that I, I would not say that my number one thesis would be to say that the clear implication from these verses in 1 Corinthians 13 is that prophecy is useful for today. I don't think that's the clear implication. I think that there are other implications. Okay. Number two, it is a spirit-prompted, spirit-sustained utterance that is rooted in a true revelation, but is fallible because the prophet's perception of the revelation and thinking about the revelation and report of the revelation are all fallible. It is thus similar to the gift of teaching, which is spirit-prompted, spirit-sustained, rooted in an infallible revelation, and yet is fallible, but very useful to the church. Number three, it does not have an authority that is on par with Scripture, for Scripture is verbally inspired, not just spirit-prompted and spirit-sustained. The very words of the biblical writers are the words of God. This is not true of the words that come from the gift of prophecy. And number four, the New Testament gift of prophecy is a, quote, third category of prophetic utterance between the categories of, number one, verbally inspired, intrinsically authoritative, infallible speech spoken by the likes of Moses, Jesus, and the apostles, and number two, the speech of false prophets spoken presumptuously, without inspiration, and liable to condemnation. Those two categories, absolutely infallible versus false, do not exhaust all the biblical teaching on prophecy. That's a key assumption. So his definition of prophecy then is this. Prophecy in this third category the New Testament gift of prophecy, is a regulated message or report in human words usually made to the gathered believers based on a spontaneous personal revelation from the Holy Spirit for the purpose of edification, encouragement, consolation, conviction, or guidance, but not necessarily free from a mixture of human error and thus needing assessment on the basis of the apostolic biblical teaching, and mature spiritual wisdom. Now, I know that this is not what John Piper is intending to say. I mean, again, I, I last week said, I'm, I'm the, the person up here who's taking to task John Piper and Wayne Grudem. I mean, that's laughable in and of itself from a certain perspective. But I don't know how this landed upon you but does not it seem as though there is this effort to sort of thread some very small needle to allow for what I might just crudely refer to as the introduction of sanctified confusion in the life of the church? I mean, it just seems like we're trying to kind of, I mean, he even calls this a, a third category. And that third category, that third lane, if you will, falls somewhere between 
Old Testament prophecy and the insp verbally inspired and ultimately inscripturated words of Old Testament prophets like Moses and Jeremiah and Isaiah and Amos and Habakkuk and others, the words of Jesus and the words and writings of the apostles, there's that lane. And then there's, there's the false prophets that were subject to the worst kinds of penalties for their false prophecy. The false prophets who are warned against over and over and over by Jesus and the apostles in the New Testament. The false apostles that, that John himself in his epistles, as well as in the Revelation, is extremely concerned about as they continue to grow and expand in number. Then there's this third category. The third category is the New Testament prophet with the New Testament gift of prophecy that is a human word rooted in revelation from the Holy Spirit, but potentially fallible and mixed with error and therefore requires assessment and discernment by those who are wise. Some practical suggestions in light of all of this from Piper are this. Number one, recognize God's complete sovereignty in giving gifts freely, freely to whomever, whomever he wills. Check. We're good with that. Number two, recognize that not all will become prophets. Check. We're good with that. That's explicitly what the text says that we just read. Not all are prophets. Number three, desire earnestly this gift. Pray for it. Now we're getting into some interesting waters, are we not? There is a reference in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, for example, that speaks of earnestly desiring to prophesy. So when we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, 1, we're going to have to contend with that. But not now, sorry. But you see, you see how we you see how important it is. The the how we kind of broadly understand what the scriptures are teaching, particularly in the context of Corinth in, first, in the first century and what the Apostle Paul is contending with, becomes of paramount importance because then you get to a place where you have to understand what are the implications for me? What does obedience to the text of scripture compel me toward when I read something like that in 1 Corinthians chapter 14? So we're going to have to contend with this carefully. Number four, a number four suggestion from Piper. Be grateful for the gifts you have. Use them to the full. Rejoice that others are different from you and avoid all jealousy. Perfect. That's clear. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 makes that abundantly clear. Number five, make love your aim in all things. Realize that love is the greatest miracle and the surest sign of God's blessing. Grow more and more towards solid, stable, biblical maturity. Excellent. Great suggestion. Number six, Muster the courage. Now, here's where, again, number six, muster the courage to speak out what you believe with more or less confidence. I'm not sure what that means. May be given to you from the Lord in gatherings designed for this less structured expression. This is not a very well worded statement. That's why I keep looking at it. That's why the pause. It says, muster the courage to speak out what you believe. 
with more or less confidence may be given to you from the Lord in gatherings designed for this less, less structured expression. So it's not a, there must be a typo in this, but what I, obviously he's saying is, you know, step out. You know, if you, if you sense a prompting of the Holy Spirit, you need to muster the courage to speak out what you believe is a word from the Lord for someone else in the assembly. That's the idea. Some of you are like going, I don't even want to speak out my own opinion in the assembly in a public situation, much less a word from the Lord. But, but you, you, you gather what the suggestion is. He's, what he's saying is, is that the Lord might be speaking to you something that is of benefit or for the edification of someone in the assembly. And if that indeed is the case, because the gift of prophecy is for the church today, and you might be a recipient of that gift, for you to not have courage to speak out, you could be holding back the gift that the Lord has given you for the building up of the body. I mean, that's obviously the probably the logic going on here. All right? And number seven, have humble expectations that the prophecy will not be taken as a word of Scripture, but as a spirit-prompted human word to be weighed by Scripture and by mature spiritual wisdom. For a prophecy to be accepted as valid, it should find an echo in the hearts of spiritually mature people. It should be confirmed by biblically saturated insight. And it should find a resonance in the hearts and minds of those who have the mind of Christ and are ruled by his peace. This is another sort of framing up of some of the thinking uh, of, of those like uh, John Piper and others who would argue for the continuation of prophecy as a viable gift, even of a different type in the life of the church today. It, it's, this, it's this constant returning back to the objective standard of Scripture. So, in other words, because we can't be confident that what is being uttered in the prophetic endeavor in the life of the New Testament church, we can't be 100% confident that it's accurate. We always have to refer it back to the truth of Scripture. And I would just say, why not just start there and end there? I made this comment last week, and I, I, it may, I don't know how it came across. It wasn't intended to be sort of you know, curt or sarcastic. It really is kind of the simple way my mind works around all this. If someone were to come to me and say, I really feel like the Lord was speaking to me and telling me to tell you this, such and such and such and such. And they began to articulate some word that they felt like that they had from the Lord for me. I would literally say, thanks, and I would move on. I wouldn't like think, I really got to grapple with that. I really got to think that one through. Why? Because I, I want to just be dismissive of, of another believer or... Because, you know, I'm a staunch cessationist and I'm not going to let anybody penetrate my cessationist barriers. No. It's because the, the sure word has been given to me. Like, I've been indwelt by the very Spirit of God who illumines my mind to the truth such that I can have the mind of Christ. In other words, I believe what Scripture teaches about who I am about what He has revealed and what its purpose is and what He has called me to and what His Spirit in me can enable me to know and discern and act upon. That's, that's it. That's, that's just as simple as it gets. So this idea of sort of 
having to, you know, it, it has to have this echo in the hearts of the spiritually mature, and we have to make sure we test it by Scripture. It's like, let's just start there. Can we just, like, start there? Like, I have a word from you. God is love. Take that. Deal with it. So therefore, he loves you. There's a word from the Lord for you. I have a word from the Lord from you. His word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It divides both joint and marrow. It's powerful. I mean, you see what I'm saying? There's just a sense in which it's like, I, it just strikes me as, as just creating murkiness where there doesn't need to be murkiness. And while John Piper has written and spoken on this matter of New Testament prophecy in sort of what, I mean, this might not be a fair characterization, but in my observation, in maybe a more incidental and sporadic way, in other words, it's not like he's you know, beating the prophecy drumbeat all the time and writing on it all the time and speaking about it all the time. It's just sort of incidental and sporadic and occasional. Uh, Wayne Grudem, on the other hand, uh, wrote a 350-page book on the subject entitled The Gift of Prophecy in the New Testament and Today, and we referenced that some last week. But listen to Wayne Grudem's definition from his book, his definition of New Testament prophecy. Prophecy, he says, in ordinary New Testament churches, was not equal to Scripture in authority, but was simply a very human and sometimes partially mistaken report of something the Holy Spirit brought to someone's mind. New Testament prophecy consists of telling something God has spontaneously brought to mind. It is an unreliable human speech act in response to a revelation from the Holy Spirit. He even admits that his his concept is a somewhat new, he says, a somewhat new definition of the nature of Christian prophecy. So, fundamental to Grudem's definition, this new definition of the nature of Christian prophecy, is that it is of an altogether different type and quality, certainly than that of Old Testament prophecy. Altogether different. It's very human, therefore it's sometimes partially mistaken. It is an unreliable human speech act in response to a revelation from the Holy Spirit rather than a thoroughly divine and necessarily accurate and reliable impartation of revelation from the Holy Spirit which has been the understanding of true prophecy for millennia. That's why it's new. That's why I would call it novel. Not new and better, just novel. And by their own account, it's definitely new. So, you're starting to see the distinction that we've been talking about since last week. And so in order for Grudem to mount any semblance of a coherent argument for what Piper, again, calls this lesser third category of prophetic speech, he has to somehow account for this disparity, this divergent understanding between Old Testament and New Testament prophecy. And as we said last week, at the forefront of his argument to bridge that divide or to think coherently about how 
You could have Old Testament prophecy and all of its descriptions and characters and means of testing it for validity versus discounting it as false that you see in the Old Testament. And the New Testament, new third category of prophecy, Grudem puts at the forefront of his argument to bring some coherence to it, his belief that the New Testament prophets are not the correct counterparts to the Old Testament prophets, but rather, as we talked about last week, the New Testament apostles are the correct corollary or the correct counterparts to the Old Testament prophet. Namely, Old Testament prophets, not exclusively and not in totality, but as we know them and understand them, were given verbally inspired words from God to convey to his people. In the same vein, New Testament apostles, especially when you look at the writings of the New Testament by the apostles, were given verbal inspiration of the words of God to put down and inscripturate to become the canon, the standard of Christian doctrine for every individual believer and for the church. That's the distinction. It's Old Testament prophet equates to New Testament apostle. So according to Grudem then, the continuity between Old and New Testament is identified in these roles and functions. Interesting, right? So you've got the same terminology used, prophet, prophet. And yet there, we, are to, we are to surmise that because the New Testament prophet is engaged in a very human endeavor that can be fraught with inaccuracy, unreliability, that there has to be some distinction. They, the New Testament prophet, you got Old Testament prophet, and you got New Testament prophet. You got apostle up here in terms of authority, accuracy, held to the same standard. So there's this direct corollary then between Old Testament prophet and New Testament apostle. And there's not a clear corollary in his words, in other words, between Old Testament prophet and New Testament prophet. So with that in mind, turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, of course, is that wonderful scene at Pentecost when really the church, the New Testament, New Covenant people of God, New Testament church is launched. And let's just read together a fairly lengthy excerpt because I want to pick up the key elements of what happens here, both in the narrative and also in Peter's sermon. Starting in verse 1, it says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together, 
And they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthenians and Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. These people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be blessed. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I might not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are witnesses. I am not going to do anything to extensively unpack this other than to say there is a massive declaration of continuity between Old Testament prophecy and New Testament prophecy. Actually quoting the words of an Old Testament prophet to usher in a new era and age of prophecy that will be a, an example or an indication of or verification of this outpouring of God's Spirit and this new uh, covenant revelation of the Son of God and the salvation that He brings for all people. You also have in here, and here's the interesting thing about, about this particular section. The continuationist would also point to Joel's, the quotation of Joel's prophecy here, and they would say there is a, a reason why we believe that the gift of prophecy and other gifts 
continue to this day. And yet, they don't take into account that this is a very broad and sweeping prophecy. Did you not notice that it speaks of that grand and terrible day of the Lord where miraculous signs in the heavens will occur? Well, that hasn't happened yet. So this particular prophecy of Joel represents continuity from Old Testament prophecy and how it's understood to New Testament prophecy and how it's understood. But it's not necessarily a, a, a proof text for continuing a, a full continuation of all these gifts until the end times. There is a touch point right there, in other words, that there is no reason to say that, that somehow New Testament prophecy is of a different category, of a different type, of a different quality even, of a different reliability, you might say. Now, as we continue to consider this, I, I would say that this is just simply a case for continuity, not a case for cessation. And we're going to talk more about that as we get further into our study, particularly in chapter 14. New Testament prophecy. Let's talk about that. David Farnell gives a definition. He says, prophecy is a sovereignly bestowed gift through which revelations from God occur. The same gift of prophecy was active whether the revelation involved canonical matters or inscripturation, writing of scripture, or the impartation of immediate guidance, immediate guidance to the church. Also, the same gift was involved whether that revelation came from apostles who possessed the gift of prophecy or from non-apostolic New Testament prophets. For this reason, prophecy involved speech based on direct reception of revelatory information from God through the prophets, which in turn guided the people of God in matters of faith and practice. So, in other words, Farnell is simply saying it was of the same type in the New Testament world as it was in the Old Testament world. Now, let's talk about a New Testament prophet for a moment. Someone came and asked last week, you know, what of New Testament prophecy? Well, the fact of the matter is, is that you don't have a lot of specific instances of prophecy happening. In, it's just, it's talked about and it's described, you know, it's, a, it's referred to or it's alluded to in the same way that you have this uh, quote of Joel and they will prophesy. Uh, you have these references where the Holy Spirit will come on a unique group of people as as this message of the gospel is unfolding in the, in the early days of the church, as the apostles are taking the gospel forward to various sort of people groups, and you'll have the Spirit fall on that people group, and there's references where it'll say, and they spoke in tongues and began to prophesy, but we don't, that's it, that's all you have. However, there is a man named Agabus in the New Testament who is specifically identified as a New Testament prophet and who we have record of two prophecies that he gives in the New Testament. The reason why I want to bring up Agabus is certainly for the reasons I just mentioned, because he's a specific you know, personification of New Testament prophecy for us to look at, but also because Wayne Grudem and others who are continuationists of the gift of prophecy would argue that Agabus is an example of the kind of New Testament prophecy that they're advocating because his prophecies were inerrant. They were, they were errant, that he made mistakes. And I just want you guys to listen to this and think through, is this, is this the takeaway? Is this what Luke is conveying to us? 
Is Luke giving us this account of Agabus and his prophecies and what transpired as a result of his prophecies to give us a sense that he's just giving human words that are mistaken? That's what I want us to think about here. So turn to Acts chapter 11 for a moment. Acts chapter 11, and we'll start in verse 27. Again, we're sort of dropping into you know, historical narrative here. So you know, if you want to kind of get the fuller picture, I would encourage you to maybe pick up earlier and read more broadly around this. But just for the sake of time and, and, and purpose this morning, look at with me at verse 27 of Acts chapter 11. It says, Now in these days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. So there is the indication that in operation... In the ministry and formation of the New Testament church, just like the Apostle Paul spoke of in Ephesians that the foundation of the church was laid by the apostles and prophets, well, here's these prophets. They come down from Jerusalem to Antioch in verse 28. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. And in parentheses, Luke says, this took place in the days of Claudius. So Agabus passes the predictive accuracy test that Deuteronomy 13 and 18 calls us to in Old Testament prophecy. And so far, uh, so, so reliable was his prophecy and so confident was his testimony and, 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 and trustworthy, uh, so trustworthy was he amongst the brothers. It says the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So apparently, Agabus was already deemed a reliable, trustworthy, passing the Old Testament prophet test, so much so that before this prophecy was fulfilled, even though Luke parenthetically confirms it was fulfilled, they followed or heeded the the implications or the instruction that might come from such a prophecy so much so that they sent aid. They sent aid as a result of this prophecy of this imminent famine. But even more specifically, if you go to Acts chapter 21, you look in verses 7 to 14. This is Paul, and he's making his way back to Jerusalem. Starting in verse 7, it says, When he had finished the voyage from Tyre, uh, when we excuse me, when we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven. Remember, back in Acts chapter six, he was appointed to uh, really in, in the role or function of a deacon or a servant in the church to help distribute the proceeds of gifts and offerings and food for the Hellenized widows who are being ignored in Acts chapter 6. So he's one of, the, one of those guys. He's a, he's a spiritual man, a godly man. And it says uh, he was one of the, excuse me, not one of the six, one of the seven in Acts chapter 6. One of the seven and stayed with him. It says in verse 9, he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. That's all we got. Four married daughters who prophesied. So... Peter says in Acts chapter 2 that this is the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. So there were prophecies that were being given and enabled by the Spirit that were falling upon men and women and servants 
and religious people. I mean, in other words, the, the, the nature of the coming of Christ and the coming of the Spirit was, was to bring salvation to the entire world, regardless of social status, regardless of gender, regardless of, not gender, regardless of sex. I don't, anyway, I'm not going to get to that. Uh, <laughs> regardless of, of, of anything, it was an outpouring of the Spirit. In other words, so this is just another example. This is this was happening in the early church era for sure. Then verse ten, while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, "Thus says the Holy Spirit." That is the "Thus saith the Lord" prophetic formula right there. Thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When he heard this, excuse me, when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. So there's the prophecy. You're going to be bound in this same way. He took Paul's belt and bound himself and said, you're going to be bound in this same way when you go to Jerusalem. The Jews, he says, will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Thus says the Holy Spirit. Now I would, I would assume that it is in Luke's interest that him quoting a word directly from the Holy Spirit through Agabus would be something that he would seek to validate or not, let's say, to not um, uh, sloppily call into question. In fact, if you remember Luke, was the one who characterized his narrative in both the Gospel of Luke and in Acts as he, he's the historian. He spoke with lots of eyewitnesses and he wrote everything down. In other words, Luke was meticulous in his narratives. So just taking the nature of his own writing and his own approach to chronicling these things, it, it doesn't stand to reason, but but listen to, listen to what it says in Acts chapter 21, starting in verse 27 through verse 36. When the seven days were almost completed, and the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, talking about Paul, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus and Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them, and when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. 
Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing and some another, and as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd, for the mob of the people following, crying out, uh, for the mob of the people cr uh, followed, crying out, away with him. Now, Grudem highlights the mistakes that Ab Agabus makes in his book. As, 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 a, as a validation or an affirmation that indeed Agabus is representative of the New Testament prophet, this third kind of prophet, this third category of prophet, who can make mistakes. Here's what Grudem says. There appear to be two competing factors in this passage. On the one hand, Agabus's introductory phrase, thus says the Holy Spirit, suggests an attempt to speak like the Old Testament prophets, who said, thus says the Lord. On the other hand, however, the events of the narrative itself do not coincide with the kind of accuracy that the Old Testament requires for those who speak God's words. In fact, by Old Testament standards, Agabus would have been condemned as a false prophet because in Acts 21, 27-35, neither of his predictions are fulfilled. So, Grudem's analysis is that Agabus, his predictions were not fulfilled by the record of Luke as he described what happened to the Apostle Paul. He says, first, Agabus predicted that the Jews at Jerusalem would bind Paul. However, when Paul is actually captured in Jerusalem later in the same chapter, Luke tells us twice that he was it was not the Jews, but the Romans who bound Paul. So the reference there is, the implication there is, is that because Luke didn't repeat the same words to describe what was happening, that it wasn't until the Roman centurions arrived to respond to the uproar and to see what was going on that they're the ones that actually bound Paul with chains. You remember that from the narrative? The Romans bound Paul with chains. So by virtue of that being the the actual statement of Luke in the narrative, then therefore Agabus, doing this whole theatrical thing of taking Paul's belt and binding himself and saying that's how he'll be bound by the, the Jews in Jerusalem, he, he made a mistake. It turns out it was actually the Romans who bound him. Now, is it not possible, even likely, that in order to take a man and forcibly constrain him so that you can beat him, there could have been some means of binding him, keeping him from running away. I mean, in other words, there's no specific reference by Luke to the specific fulfillment word for word of what Agabus said, but that doesn't indicate that that's not what happened. And, it, and, and furthermore, there would have to be a certain sloppiness on the part of Luke to want to somehow bring discredit or somehow discredit, bring reproach on Agabus as a viable prophet, even though Luke himself calls him out as a prophet and quotes him as speaking the words of the Holy Spirit. This is a biblical interpretation matter. Do you see this? In other words, we're going to this and we're saying, okay, in order for this to be considered the same kind of prophecy as Old Testament prophecy, which, if that were the case, then it would completely invalidate my whole position. But nevertheless, in order for that to be the case, 
I've got to see word for word exactly what Agabus said happened in the subsequent sections of Luke. Otherwise, this is a mistake that he made, and therefore he's in this third category of prophecy. That would be, the, I guess, the mindset of, of someone like Grudem. He goes on to make these other cases, but he clearly states that, that it shows that, that Agabus was basically mistaken. That somehow, even though he says, thus says the Holy Spirit, that you know, it got a little bit, the details got a little bit mixed up because it was a human enterprise, ultimately. And so his response, if you recall from some of the description, his response to this inspired revelatory word from the Holy, Holy Spirit then became fallible in its utterance. And so the details were off. They were mistaken. That's the argument. Here's the interesting note. Aside from the fact that, to me, that's straining gnats. I mean, that's just, that to me is just doesn't, there's no call for that kind of, uh, that kind of, you know, placement on the text of Scripture and saying it has to do this in order for there to be, you know, a legitimate consistency here. Paul himself, in Acts chapter 28, verse 17, recounting what happened, says this, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. That word for delivered is the exact same word that Agabus used when he said that Paul would be delivered by the Jews into the hands of the Romans. So, clearly, Luke is talking about Agabus receiving a prophetic word from the Holy Spirit, uttering it, that's what happens, and then the Apostle Paul says, yeah, that's what happened. I was there. I remember. And yet, the argument from the counter side is that that's an example of this third category where mistakes were made. It is now 1028, and I am so out of time. So, how do I conclude? Because I've got, oof, yeah, I'm not done yet. All right, uh, so we will just wrap up with that. Um, and this is probably a good segue because what we're going to get into next is we're going to get into the actual uh, statements of the Apostle Paul in chapter 12 about first apostles, then prophets, then teachers. And we're going to start talking about these individual functions. We're talking about prophecy versus teaching versus preaching versus the evangelist, the different roles in the church like that. And then these specific gifts that he mentions, and we'll try, we'll get into a little more specific detail from the text. But for now, it's now 1029, so let's pray. Father, we're grateful for the time. I pray that you continue to guide us in our study. Help us to um, help us to be diligent to, to do the work that's necessary, to, to be faithful, to understand your truth, to be careful, and to recognize that. Um, that we can, we can be easily misled. Um, so I pray that you would give us guidance as we continue through this study. Help us to have a, a desire that is not motivated by any kind of uh, theological arrogance or just a desire for knowledge, for knowledge's sake, but to understand what your truth teaches so that we can know Christ so that we can walk in Him, and so that we can be faithful as Your people as we gather as the body. That, that is our desire. May we, may we do that in love, as You've called us to, and in faithfulness, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, guys.
Yes, sir. I just had a, a quick question. Um, Your name is? Reed. I'm first time in the class. I'm Richard. I'm just getting old something, so we'll do it. There awesome. we go, yeah. Um, but, and as you said, Gruden and other guys are really great, but what, what in the word, how would prophecy be of any benefit if you're kind of like, well, maybe it's true. Maybe. I mean, it's like practically even, it just seems so illogical. Yeah, that's what, that's what I've, I've found to be rather stunning. And even the even the arguments that they put to print, because it's just it's just a yeah, it really is. It's almost like the nature of the gift itself, as they understand it. Uh, that's the character of it. It is, it it, it is. That we're, we're, yeah, <laughs> we're going to get to another another component of it. Oh, here, Brandon, can you take this? I guess.